0: Welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer at Farrell Fritz in New York City. If you've been a regular listener to the podcast, welcome back. It's been a while since I posted the last episode, but I'm very pleased to bring you this new episode featuring my interview with Art Rosenblum on the topic of mediating business valuation disputes. Art's a very interesting, very articulate, very savvy lawyer and former investment banker who is also quite knowledgeable in the art and science of business valuation, which is a skill set he combines very effectively in his practice as a mediator. Art has written many articles on valuation and related topics in national publications. He's taught as an adjunct professor at prominent business and law schools, and he's a longtime mediator and arbitrator by court appointment and also with the American Arbitration Association. I first met Art last year as a mediator assigned by the court in a case I handled that resulted from a cash-out merger in which the parties disagreed on the value of the minority owner's interest. As you'll hear, Art's ability to critique each side's valuation contentions played a significant role in achieving settlement in that case. Art also published last year an informative article called Mediating Valuation Disputes in Minority Oppression Litigation, published in the New York Law Journal, in which he gives some background concerning the fair value standard in case law relating to statutory buyouts when an oppressed minority shareholder sues for dissolution. His article also talks about the role and techniques of the valuation-trained mediator in helping to resolve valuation contests. You can find a copy of Art's article by visiting his website at Mediate.com forward slash A. Rosenblum or on my blog, nybusinessdivorce.com. Business divorce cases almost inevitably result in one side buying out the other, which in turn requires the focus to turn to business valuation. I hope that after listening to my interview with Art, some of you will be inspired to consider mediation as a quicker and more cost-effective means to get to the buyout agreement. I now bring you Art Rosenblum. Art, welcome to the Business Divorce Roundtable.
1: Nice to be here.
0: It's great to have you here talking about mediating business valuation disputes, which come up in just about every case that I handle in my business divorce practice. I met you uh, last year as a mediator. That's right. We had a cash-out merger case that was in, in Supreme Court in New York. We were directed to the court mediation program. You were uh, supplied to us as the mediator. I was very nicely surprised to find out that you had some real valuation chops. That is, you were experienced in the ways of valuation. And I had never been involved in a mediation with a mediator who actually knew fair value standards and case law and valuation methodology the way you know it. I think in our case, we settled I think, in one day, did we not? We
1: settled in one day. It was a bunch of- Long day, though. It
0: was a long day with a lot of uh, you caucusing with one side, then the other, then the other. But it was a good lesson for me in utilizing the skills of a mediator with valuation know-how to help settle the case. I remember you were very active and vocal in speaking, I assume, with both sides, not just with my side, about strengths or weaknesses of the valuation presentation
1: that each side was making. That's right. In in your case, as distinguished from others that I've mediated, there were valuation reports that had been rendered uh, by each side. That gave me the opportunity to engage in candid discussions uh, with each side as to the strengths and limitations of uh, each side's uh, valuation positions. And, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to say that both sides actually listened.
0: In my practice area, well, I always preach that in the end, it's all about the buyout. Whether it's two 50-50 shareholders or 50-50 members of an LLC or a minority-majority setup. If it's a viable business and the two owners or three or however many owners there are can no longer cohabit. There needs to be a separation, and that's really what business divorce is all about, a legal separation of the ownership of a closely held business entity. As I said, if it's a viable entity, rather than blow it up, someone is going to buy out someone else, because ultimately that's the best way to preserve value for everyone.
1: That's uh, correct, and it arises in a variety of contexts, uh, one of which is the 1104A proceeding under the New York BCL, which is a demand for dissolution, which I point out in other precincts is, uh, is simply a shot across the bow in which the petitioner is really suggesting that maybe there ought to be uh, that kind of uh, business divorce. That 1104A, of course, uh, triggers an 1118 proceeding under the New York uh, uh, BCL uh, uh, as well.
0: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I always refer to this as um, tactical litigation, whether it's a minority you know, shareholder, a press minority shareholder petition, or even a deadlock dissolution petition between 50-50 shareholders. It's really not about trying to kill the company. It's really just getting on to both sides or trying to maneuver onto the higher grounds for the ultimate settlement showdown, which as I think we both agree, is usually going to be in the form of a buyout of one by the other. Although, Art, I've seen this, maybe you have too, depending on the nature of the business, sometimes the business can be divided in a fashion, it's somewhat infrequent and my experience, but sometimes you can actually divide up the assets of a business, but that also gets you into valuation because people are going to want to get their pro rata value in the company,
1: right? I can't reveal the details, but I have a matter before me which suggests exactly that. The fact pattern involves the management of a variety of real estate uh, properties by warring family members. And one of the suggestions that has been made is that there be an equitable distribution uh, of uh, those assets between the warring uh, uh, family parties.
0: One of the phenomenon that I experience in my cases where as you approach buyout is the radically different concepts of value that the two sides have, driven in no small part by the eventuality that the one side over here is going to be the buyer and the other side is going to be the seller. And, and in many cases, you have a natural buyer and a natural seller. In other words, you can you know there's going to be a buyout at the end, and you can even say who it is is going to buy out the other. And it's uh, part of it is human nature. Part of it is everyone just trying to get the best deal for themselves. But I've seen it in my own practice, I've seen it in the reported cases where you have valuation experts coming in, one valuing a company as if it's the next Google, and the other as if it is a bucket of warm spit. And its it always shocks me that you can have credentialed appraisers on two sides who are looking at the same data relating to the same company, and one of them is coming in so astronomically high and the other so astronomically low, which I would think is another recipe for bringing in a neutral, i.e. a mediator, to try and help the parties bridge this tremendous gap that you often see.
1: There is a tremendous gap, uh, and that's partly due to the fact that small changes in valuation metrics can result in significant differences in value. How you handle the discount rate, uh, how you compute terminal value, uh, how you analyze the question of a discount or lack of, uh, of a discount and the rationale uh, for those. Relatively minor uh, tweaks to the valuation elements can make for major differences. And that's why the Delaware Chancery Court, before whom I've uh, testified, uh, is usually very dubious uh, about appraisal reports. And while on the one hand alleging that as uh, lawyers and jurists, they have no real valuation shops, don't believe that, they have great chops, they generally come up with a number that's somewhere in between the numbers asserted by the two valuation experts uh, in the case.
0: I know from my prior encounters with you and from talking with you this evening, you love valuation, you love talking about valuation, and we're going to talk about valuation, but I also want to focus initially at least more on the mediation process and why is it that a valuation dispute between the two or more camps in one of these business divorces, why should they consider mediation? What, what are the benefits of
1: it really? Well, the benefits of mediation are, it seems to me, quite clear and simple. It's a faster way of resolving difficulties, and it is a less contentious way of uh, getting to yes on the part of uh, the parties who are litigating. Once things get into discovery, once you start taking depositions, and once there's motion practice... uh, and the acrimony bills and the costs bill, it's more difficult to, to, uh, to get to uh, a settlement. If you can get the matter at a point in time where there's some preliminary understanding as to what the issues are in the case, but it hasn't so ripened that parties are hardened in their positions, it becomes possible, it seems to me, to do a meaningful mediation. And it's a, it's a great substitute. It's better in some respects uh, than arbitration because arbitration, as many of us know, has become so encrusted uh, with uh, the elements that uh, typically pervade in a, uh, in a litigation are inserted into the arbitration process. It also allows the parties to walk away from this kind of encounter, particularly if they're family members, with uh, a better feeling than that which they would otherwise have if this thing went all the way
0: You mentioned arbitration. In my um, conversations with people, sometimes the uninitiated anyway, they're not quite aware of the difference between arbitration and mediation. Arbitration being a binding process, ultimately, and mediation being a non-binding process. In other words, if it's uh, successful, it, it culminates with a voluntary settlement agreement. And if it's not successful, the people walk away and go back to litigation or
1: wherever they were. Yeah, that's, that's uh, precisely true. Mediation 101 uh, declares that it's not up to the mediator for the most part. There are mediators proposals, so it's up to the parties themselves to be sufficiently empowered to create the conditions under which both parties get to the finish line. And part of the art of the mediation process is to insist At one and the same time that the mediator is relatively powerless in the process, can't compel anything. Mediator as cheerleader, but also mediator as someone who in the caucus sessions is able to evaluate the positions, the strengths and weaknesses of each side. You mentioned
0: art that in the mediation that you handled in in my case, that there were already some valuation reports that were provided to you and that allowed you to talk to the parties whether together or separately, and assess strengths and weaknesses of the valuation reports in an effort to bring the parties together. Is it essential for the mediator to have valuation reports in order to successfully mediate what ultimately has to be a dispute over how much someone's going to pay and how much someone's going to accept for the value of their equity stake?
1: It's not a condition precedent. It's useful. For example, An alternative might be to have a valuation expert who comes in after the parties uh, are in dispute. So, for example, I had a matter uh, a couple of years ago uh, in which there was a family dispute as to the value of certain real property, one in Nassau County uh, and one in Manhattan. And I was successful in inducing the parties to hire a neutral third party valuation expert. And the parties were perfectly free to uh, criticize uh, uh, the findings of that independent third party. But it acted as a start for the negotiation process. Both parties were impressed by the analysis. Each had uh, their own reservations. But those reservations were successfully compromised in the give and take uh, of the mediation process.
0: So what I hear you saying is that, number one, timing is important And early intervention is helpful. That is, let's start the mediation in the earliest stages of the dispute, not wait until after months or even years of motion practice and discovery. And then, A, if the parties bring to the mediation their own valuation experts or reports, that gives you a good start and, as in the case that you handled for me, can lead to a a settlement and if they don't have, if they haven't yet engaged appraisers, you as a mediator can try and persuade the parties to engage a jointly a qualified appraiser. It's on a non-binding basis, correct? That's right. And, and share the costs equally. When you're able to get the parties to jointly engage an appraiser, do you as the mediator serve as the intermediary between the appraiser and the parties? Or, and their council, or do the parties and their council have direct access to and communication with the appraiser?
1: Both. They may offer their comments and uh, uh, critiques to uh, the uh, independent valuation firm, but notifying me uh, what those uh, questions are, and I serve uh, uh, as an interlocutor between the uh, uh, the independent valuation expert and the parties uh, as well. But you know, these are facts and circumstances, uh, situations, uh, Peter. You got to mark to the market. Each fact pattern will uh, have its own uh, dynamic, uh, and uh, no single solution will fit every circumstance but i want to back up a little bit uh, on something you were talking about earlier about the about the earliness uh, of uh, intervention of the mediation process if i had my druthers, i'd rather have the parties come to mediation before uh, a, a petition for dissolution or other pleading is is filed when things are so flexible that it's in some senses uh, much easier uh, to get the parties uh, uh, to uh, to get the yes and that generally,
0: I would imagine, requires the involvement of usually either the lawyers or maybe some accountants who might be uh, working with the parties, because otherwise, how are they going to come to someone like you?
1: That's right. You've got to have somebody who uh, initiates the process, but it could be the parties themselves who mm. uh, one one party says, look, you know, Joe, we've been partners for umpty-ump years. Uh, we're about to engage in a process which is going to be unhappy and unpleasant and costly for both of us, why don't we try to mediate the thing uh, and uh, let me find out uh, how one might go about that. What do you say? About- there, there are a bunch of
0: I guess, different pathways to get to a mediation. One of them would be baked into a shareholder's agreement or an operating agreement is a mandatory, you know, an obligation to mediate before anyone goes to either to court or to arbitration. I don't see that too often, but I am seeing it more often these days than I used to. Have you had any mediations that came your way by reason of a, you know, contractual obligation to mediate?
1: No, I, I haven't. Most of, most of mine have, have come about as a result of, uh, of uh, recommendations uh, by the court or by parties who know who I am. These kinds of disputes. Now you mentioned before
0: 1104-A. I think you did. That's right. And that's the statute under the business corporation law that permits a minority shareholder who holds at least 20% of the voting shares to petition the court for dissolution. Lawyers know that once that dissolution petition is filed, that triggers the right of the other shareholders or the corporation to elect to buy out that minority shareholder at, quote, fair value, close quote. That's how we end up talking a lot about the fair value standard. You might have other standards, such as the fair market value standard or other variations on that as arising out of the shareholders agreement or the operating agreement, some some contract the parties have that requires a certain standard other than fair value to be applied. All of those can be mediated. I mean, that, that doesn't really make a difference. But I guess as a practical matter, given that a lot of the mediations you handle are coming out of the court system, I imagine that most of them would involve the fair value standard under one or the other of those two statutes.
1: Is that your experience? That is certainly my experience. One of the problems uh, with the the courts in New York, at least, uh, is that they often conflate uh, the concept of fair value and the concept of fair market value, and they shouldn't be. Fair value suggests to most practitioners value at the corporate level and involves the proportionate interest in the entity of the affected uh, security holder. fair market value, employing as it does the uh, rubric of revenue ruling 59-60, speaks to the willing buyer, willing seller, uh, each equally well informed uh, as to the facts and neither under a compulsion to buy or sell, and suggests more automatically a discount for lack of marketability than does the uh, the fair value uh, standard, but uh, one really never knows because, at least in New York, the courts uh, agree on a discount for lack of marketability, except as I pointed out in another context, when they don't. Are there are there instances
0: art where the parties you you've got them in the the mediation with you but they can't agree on what the standard of value should be or the premise of value should be. Or one says no marketability discount. The other says, yes, there should be. How as a mediator can you deal with these very fundamental differences that ultimately have to have an impact on the value?
1: I think what you need to do in that kind of circumstance where uh, the petitioner says no DLOM, and the respondent says, oh, absolutely a DLOM, is to try to imagine how the trier of the facts would think about that question. Thus, in a case in which it is reasonably likely that the court would find the respondent's conduct totally egregious, it is more likely in my judgment that such a court would likely not apply a discount for lack of marketability and vice versa. There are some cases that more or less imply this. Reading the tea leaves is not easy by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm inclined to believe that given the confusion that I think reigns in the New York courts, it's a facts and circumstances question which significantly is determined by the extent to which the court perceives that the respondent is behaving unreasonably.
0: Is that a a challenge for a mediator? Because most of the mediation, in my experience, is taken up with caucusing. That is, the mediator is meeting in one room over here with one side and their lawyers, and you spend some time speaking with them, and then you leave them and you go into a separate room with the other side and their legal counsel you're hearing, perhaps, two very different versions of what the facts and circumstances are. You're a mediator, not a judge... There's no cross-examination going on. How can you as a mediator, or is it even, a, is that something you want to do as a mediator to come to some sort of an assessment about the behavior of this side or that side and whether one side was acting egregiously? Should that be a part of what you do as a medi- as a mediator and are you able to do it?
1: In all circumstances, it's up to the mediator to try to put the parties into a sphere of reality as to how the trier of the facts is likely to handle the issue at bar. If the mediator knows his or her stuff, should be able to create penumbras of doubt, as I call them in this article, penumbras of doubt uh, on the part of both parties. As you may recall, uh, in in our matter, I was uh, quite upfront in doing that, and I represent to you that uh, I was uh, uh, doing precisely the same thing when I caucused with your adversary. And I have to confess that uh, I enjoy and dare say I'm relatively good at uh, the business of creating these penumbras of doubts, such that cases uh, uh, more often than not, not always,
0: where you have a buyer and a seller and they can't agree on price it's not so much about you know, who's right and who's wrong. I mean, there is something objective about the valuation process. I mean, I know they call it both art and science, but there is a lot of science to it, and more so with some types of businesses than others, real estate particularly, right? Because in New York City, anyway, you have a very active, robust real estate market where you can get very solid data by which to measure the value of the subject property. But if two parties are walking into a mediation with set ideas about what the business or the property is worth, it seems to me that a mediator can bring the most value to the mediation process by having an opinion, by offering their assessments of the strength and weakness of each side's positions. If you don't do that, how are you ever going to bridge a gap in which each side is looking at as sort of the objective value of their properties?
1: I think it is important to, to have an opinion, but I don't want to brush aside merits, the merits of the, of the case. The mediator's role, it seems to me, necessarily involves an assessment of the merits because if one party or the other is convinced that they will necessarily prevail or have a high likelihood of prevailing, it's going to be difficult to deal with evaluation issues because if they've been put into this by the court, sometimes kicking and screaming, you've got to deal, it seems to me, with the merits at least to some degree. Only when there is a sufficient level of doubt about the ability to prevail on the merits in the minds of parties who feel beyond any moral certainty that they ought to prevail, need to prevail, will you be able to get down to the nitty-gritty of the numbers that are inherent in the valuation uh, process which allows for ultimate settlement.
0: I don't know if you've encountered situations where you have business owners, each of whom is prepared to buy out the other, do you ever get into a, um, you know, a shotgun situation, that is, where you convince the parties, one of them should name a price, and then the other party has the option either to buy or sell? Is that a technique that you've ever been able to use in a mediation?
1: I've, I've used those techniques, not always successfully. I have a matter pending before me right now where that is exactly the case but it's only one of a number of, uh, of uh, possible solutions. The fact of the matter is that it's hard for a mediator, and this is my difficulty in the f- matter that I'm about to describe, it's difficult for the mediator to be effective with a, where there is a dispositive motion pending. And I have that problem because until that motion uh, whether, it's a, whether it's a motion to dismiss or a motion for summary judgment, is resolved. It's really hard to have the parties focus on the valuation but issues. It's
0: funny you say that because in the case that, in my case that you handled as mediator, we had pending a dispositive uh, motions, not dispositive as to the value of the interest that was at stake, but dispositive as to whether the cash out merger was valid or not. And sort of I, I have, a I think, a different perspective than you which is that before the motions are decided is when both sides are at the a relatively higher level of uncertainty on both sides. I mean, yes, each side and their lawyers can be confident that they're going to win. But do they really know? Of course they don't. And it's the uncertainty that actually can motivate parties to settle. I mean, the, the, the window of settlement is wider, I, I would argue, before the decision than after. Because after the decision, one side is going to be significantly stronger and one side's going to be significantly weaker. What do you think of that?
1: I'm glad you reminded me of uh, of the fact that there was a, a pending motion in the matter in which uh, uh, we were involved. My take is that it's better and easier when there is no motion uh, pending. It, motions to dismiss are are hard to prevail on most for the most part, and there are usually enough uh, factual issues uh, that will prevent a motion for summary judgment. So I don't think that uh, either party emerges from the process uh, the prevailing party uh, so confident or the other par- party so despondent in the outcome. When people believe with a moral certainty uh, that they're going to prevail and, and think they're going to get some real relief, I find it harder. I've Look, I, I've made it absolutely clear in our chat uh, thus far that I prefer to get the matter before the litigation even starts. So uh, we may just differ on that point.
0: So let's say you have a mediation assignment, and both sides come into the mediation with some form of valuation report. Maybe it's a full-blown conclusion of value compliant with, you know, ASA standards, AICPA standards, or maybe it's something quicker and dirtier than that. But both sides come in with their valuations. Are you going to ask them to bring their appraisers to the mediation?
1: That could be the case. And then you'd have the, uh, the give and take of uh, uh, experts uh, who uh, duel with each other over certain valuation standards. It hasn't been my practice, though. I haven't actually done it. And I don't know what, uh, what the outcome uh, would be.
0: I'm not surprised that you say, you know, you haven't had that experience because, A, sometimes it can be very, very difficult to get the parties to, ex- you know, outside of a discovery process and litigation, it can often be hard to get the parties to even exchange their, their appraisals, whether they're formal or informal. So that, that wouldn't surprise me. It seems to me that if you could script a mediation where valuation is the issue and you have parties with valuation reports and you have their valuation experts together, I would think that's a pretty good formula for success in a mediation. But so here's what.
1: Uh, it really depends in significant part, I believe, on the chemistry uh, between the, uh, the dueling experts. I was an expert uh, in a case, uh, a matrimonial, as it turns out involving uh, shares of a closely held corporation. And the other expert was a guy I I know very well. Uh, And uh, we have lunch together uh, and uh, got along very well. We got a very good outcome in that circumstance. Everybody walked away uh, happy and uh, we had lunch together again. So it depends. If, on the other hand, it turns out that there's an adversarial proceeding, Uh, between the experts. That's not good for getting to yes. Um, Art, uh, before you talked
0: about the joint selection and and engagement of an appraiser, both sides would share the cost of hiring a single appraiser who would then value the company or the assets in question on a non-binding basis. Are there other methods that you've used in mediation to bring on
1: board business appraisers? Sure. Valuation experts can be picked in a variety of ways. We talked about a single valuation firm, one sometimes recommended by the mediator, or a valuation firm selected by each side. I might point out that if the mediation involves more than two parties, that party might seek its own experts unless its position on value is likely to be substantially similar to that of another party. Should there be two or more valuation firms, their results could be averaged if they were within a certain range, say 10% of one another. If not, the valuators could pick a firm whose valuation conclusion would be binding.
0: You mentioned uh, the parties each engaging in an appraiser and a mediation. So you
1: now have two appraisals, one from each side. What do you do with them? You examine them closely. You try to discern the strengths and weaknesses of each. And in the caucus sessions, you communicate those to the parties and council. So
0: it's not designed as a binding process where, for instance, if the two appraisals are within X percent of each other, automatically you'll average them and that's the number?
1: No, I think think there should be an understanding for purposes of the mediation. It's obviously not binding uh, in any dispositive sense because the mediation itself is not dispositive. But for purposes of conducting the mediation, the parties could well agree and I think might be well advised to agree on the ground rules for the mediation, which is to say, look, you, uh, a petitioner, have uh, gotten firm A uh, to uh, to provide uh, a sense of value when you respond and have gotten firm B, and why don't you guys agree that you'll average them, uh, average the results if uh, A, uh, if the uh, experts uh, are within ten percent, and if they're not, why don't you agree that you'll go to a third party? So it's so it's not binding because the mediation itself is not binding, but for for uh, the, the operational effect uh, that it might have in the mediation, sure, why shouldn't the parties so agree? That makes
0: perfect sense. I mean, if the appraisals come in that close to one another, you would think that there's a great incentive at that point to close it out and settle it in any event.
1: There may be another kind of expert who's required other than an appraisal uh, expert. I'm mindful of the fact that tomorrow I'm mediating a matter uh, in which... Uh, the uh, petitioner uh, in, in an 1104 uh, a matter, argues that uh, the respondent has engaged in serious self-dealing. and it may be that the outcome needs to first be examined by a forensic accountant to determine exactly you know what kind of earnings uh, the company has. Uh, and, and that may even precede uh, an actual mediation proceeding. I have a matter in which the parties agreed, without court intervention or even mine, that that's what they would do. And they mutually selected uh, an independent forensic accountant uh, to uh, to go over the books and to, uh, to create effectively a new balance sheet and income statement
0: mindful that mediation is a confidential process and what goes on inside the mediation room is not supposed to be utilized in the litigation if, it, if the mediation is not successful when you talk about having the parties in mediation go out and get either jointly engage a single appraiser or each go out and get their separate appraisers or bring in a forensic accountant is all that work product going to be usable in court or or if the mediation fails, or does it just sort of go into a, a draw and, and never sees the light of day again?
1: You'd have to have the parties uh, agree to make it usable, but in the ordinary context, as I've experienced, it, uh, it's for mediation purposes only.
0: So I would think that given the sometimes considerable expense that a company's you know, engaging uh, an appraiser or a forensic expert, I would think that those have to be fairly high stakes matters to justify that kind of cost if if in the end you may not even be able to utilize the, the end result. Clearly it can't be trivial. No, I just know from experience that, again, depending on the type of business, getting appraisals, certainly full-blown appraisals, conclusions of value of the sort that would be usable in a, in a courtroom can be very expensive. And so expense requires a commitment to, in a, particularly in a mediation where it's a non-binding process.
1: That's, that's true. And it's clear that the matter at stake has to have some consequence, serious consequence numbers-wise to justify uh, those experts. I think particularly the forensic experts who I believe uh, may be uh, costlier uh, than the appraisal firms, some of whom work for what seems to me to be relatively modest uh, uh, amounts of money.
0: Well, you've been talking numbers, numbers, and numbers, but we all know that in business divorce, it's all about emotion too, isn't it? Emotions run extremely high, particularly in the setting of a family owned business. How as a mediator in these matters where you're trying to facilitate a a buyout and where the dispute is over value of the business, but the emotions are distorting the party's perceptions, sense of right and wrong, the goals that they've set for themselves, how as a mediator do you deal with? those very high emotions.
1: There's no question that emotions tend to run high in these matters, particularly so as you properly point out, uh, when family members are concerned. Mediation 101 tells you that it's vitally important for the parties to vent their emotions during joint sessions and during caucus sessions. Because until they get it out, it's extremely difficult for them to focus on the valuation, or indeed other issues, the merits uh, uh, issues uh, in the case. The mediator's role is to sit there and to nod appreciatively, not indicating that the mediator favors or disfavors anyone's position, but nods, and by so doing, conveys the notion, I understand where you're coming from. So a lot of venting can go
0: on in those joint sessions or in the caucuses. Absolutely, and should. And it's healthy, Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Art. It's been a pleasure talking with you about mediating valuation disputes, and I hope I get to see you again, maybe in the joint
1: session or caucus room. I look forward to that, Peter. It's been a great pleasure to communicate with you and the audience that lies beyond this conference room.
0: That was Art Rosenblum on Mediating Business Valuation Disputes. I have no doubt that mediation will continue to gain acceptance and enthusiasm among judges, lawyers, and business owners as a better way to resolve situations requiring a business divorce. And since that usually boils down to a buyout, that the combination of mediation skills and valuation expertise can be a real plus in reaching settlements. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you like it, tell your friends and colleagues, or better yet, post a five-star review on iTunes. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler for the Business Divorce Roundtable.